0: Revelation chapter 20. Um, For those of you that are picking up handouts, you'll see that there are three back there. One of them is for today. And then I included uh, handouts uh, that we did uh, back the last Sunday in April and the first Sunday in May for when we talked about the views of the millennial kingdom. Since we're going to run into that front and center here this morning I went ahead and, and got those handouts and so if you still don't have them you can grab one back there let's pray father thank you again for the gift of your word the gift of your holy spirit how you guide us into all truth and today as we see the the outcome the consequences from your judgment of sin we see your your earthly kingdom come to pass, and we see ultimately the, the judgment of the unredeemed. That day is coming, and we pray that you would help us to, to see that in its fullness, that it would spur us on all the more to plead with people to flee from the wrath to come and to turn to you and to repent and believe and be redeemed. Help us to see you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week when we looked at chapter 19, we saw in verse 1 of chapter 19 the last use of a phrase that has occurred fairly regularly in this book. And that is the phrase, after these things. Now, when we have seen that phrase, after these things, what has that served as in this book? When John has written, after these things, what what is he getting at? What is he signaling? There's a change. So he has been seeing a vision. He has been seeing whatever it is that has been played, being played out before him in heaven. And after these things is a transition of going from, what he has seen now into this new vision. There's a separation there. Chapter 19, verse 1 is the last use of that phrase in this book. And so it is best for us to understand that chapter 19 through chapter 22 is basically one continuous vision it's one continuous event so these things are happening in chronological order and just immediately following and so what you, what we're going to see is that there's a lot of ands starting verses or thens starting verses and so when we are relating a story to somebody and we say this happened then What is that communicating? Order of progress. Order of progress, exactly. So you have this event, then this occurred, because this occurred after that occurred, right? And so it's going through and laying things out and giving you a progression as to what's happening. And so that is what's happening from chapter 19 when we see the the finalization of the judgment of the great harlot And then we move into uh, the return of Christ, and you have the Battle of Armageddon. Those are the three major events in chapter 19. Chapter 20 follows immediately on the heels of chapter 19. And that's going to make sense when we start to see um, what is happening. So, in fact, let's, as we start our reading, let's start in verse 19 of chapter 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And so you have the beast, you have the false prophets, you have the kings of the earth, you have all of their forces arrayed against Christ and the armies that are coming with him. Verse 20. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so here you have the picture of the... uh, The birds having their supper as the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, has been going on in heaven. So the beast and the false prophet in particular, the ringleaders, they are seized and they are thrown into the lake of fire. So now they become the first two occupants, the first two eternal occupants of the lake of fire. So they're there. So if they've been defeated and the armies of the unredeemed that have been assembling to fight against God have been destroyed, who do you think would become God's main target at that point? Here he's going to go after Satan. And so that's where chapter 20 begins. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then, so again, in order of progression, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So the idea of a great chain is, is what? What do you do with great chains? You bind someone. It's interesting, and, and I couldn't help as, as I was going through and in, in, in reading this, I I thought of the Apostle Paul, who was the ambassador in chains. Satan's had no problem binding God's servants. Now it's his turn. And so this angel comes down, he's got a great chain, and he's got the key to the abyss. Now, we've seen this word, abyss, before. What is the abyss? Okay, that's where the angel, and, and more specifically... The demons, exactly, the fallen angels. So many of the demons are bound in the abyss. If you look at Jude, verse 6, you'll find that there were those who were especially sinful back in the time of Genesis, and God has remanded them to the abyss, and they're never getting out until they end up in the lake of fire. And so you have some that have been, they're on, you know, they're doing life without parole in the abyss. Then you've got others who were there for a time, and they came out during the locusts back in the, um, in the earlier judgments. I'm, I'm vapor locking right now as to whether that was the seals or the trumpets. I think it was the trumpets. Um, so now Satan, and, and now let's go even back. You'll recall a time when Jesus was casting out a demon actually several and one of them cried out to him are you going to send me to the abyss are you going to do that to me so the demons know what the abyss is and so here you have an angel coming down to take satan verse 2 and he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now back in chapter 12, verse 9, we had this very same description of Satan to where it's not just that he gives him four names. So you're getting, we know exactly exactly who is being referred to here. So we have him identified as the dragon. Now the dragon has been an identifier for Satan throughout this book, right? So we have the dragon. Then we have him referred to as the serpent of old. What's that tying back to? That goes back to the Garden of Eden, right? Because you have the serpent who was tempting Eve. Then you have the term, the devil. Now the devil, in fact, when, if you have a horse named Diablo, chances are, I, I would not want to ride your horse if it's named Diablo. That, hus, that horse is not husband safe. That's actually a term for talking about horses. Diablo means devil. Diabolos is the Greek word for devil. It means a slanderer the accuser remember satan is often referred to as the accuser of who the brethren and then satan satan actually is a hebrew word that has a greek transliteration from which we get a transliteration that's how we get the name satan satan means adversary opponent and so here and so satan is the one who is Anti-God. He stands for everything that God stands against. And so here you have Satan gets laid hold of, and he gets bound, and he gets locked into the abyss for a thousand years. Now this term, thousand years, comes up six times here. So let's talk about this for a moment. Have there been numbers used in this book consistently? several times on a number of occasions think of some numbers that have come up in this book that have that have been on a number of occasions in the book seven there were seven churches what else had sevens the judgments all three cycles of judgments there were seven judgments what other numbers i'm sorry Okay, there were se- right? They're going back to seven. What other numbers? Sorry, say it louder. I, you know I can't hear. Seven, 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 oh, I already did seven. Six. Okay, 666 six, six is really a one-time use because that's the number of the name uh, that, for the beast. Say it. Four. four. What's four? Okay, there's four horses. There's four horsemen. What else has Four. There's four living creatures that are immediately adjacent to the throne. Okay, what other numbers? Twelve, and twelve is, again, twelve thrones. And ultimately, we haven't gotten into it yet, but we're going to run into twelve apostles and twelve tribes of Israel, because that's in chapter 21. There's twelve gates, all made out of a single pearl the 144,000 again is kind of a one-off because there's only one thing that's represented by that but what other numbers think about time how many times do we read about 30 uh, time times and half a time how about 42 months how about 1260 days we see those cycle up through the book. And so you have specific numbers dealing with time. You have specific numbers dealing with different groups. And so those numbers, while you could, the number seven, can absolutely have the concept of completeness. And I think that's probably intended in this book when it comes to the judgments. Ultimately, you have these seven, you have these seven, and with these final seven, you have the completion of, of the outpouring of the wrath of God. And so there probably is some background to some of these numbers. When he talks here about a thousand years, in fact, back up for just one other minute. Has God used has God used other ways of communicating large numbers in this book? Okay, Rick, you're nodding your head up and down. Myriads of myriads, when he talks about angels and when he talks about, you know, those in heaven. Myriads of myriads. Now, a myriad was the largest Greek number. And so the idea here of myriads of myriads is uh, uh, there's a whole lot, there's no sense in even trying to count. In this chapter, we're going to run into a term, they were numbered as the sands of the seashore. So what is communicated by, they're numbered by, like, the sands of the seashore. Uncountable. Uncountable. There's a whole, whole bunch of them, and we're not trying to put a number on that. God has ways to to communicate when something is a huge number, and and you're not interested in the number. There's a whole bunch. And the actual, the quantification of that is not necessary. When God repeats a number six times in the span of not many more verses than that, what should we probably conclude? It's a thousand years. years. When he says a thousand years and he keeps repeating that again and again and again, we probably ought to start to think he probably means exactly what he's saying. It's a thousand years. And so here we have this period of time introduced. Where we get the term millennial kingdom from? Millennium comes from the Latin. It's two separate words. There's mil, meaning a thousand, and annum, meaning year. So that's where the name millennial kingdom comes from. And again, I don't know if I want to get, if there's questions, we'll get into it as much as we need to, all right? The idea of the thousand year rule of Christ is that Jesus is going to rule on this planet and he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and it is an earthly kingdom that is run by Jesus personally. Satan is bound and so you have this time where you have pretty much conditions returning to near what they were in the Garden of Eden. Near because people who are born during this time still have a sin nature. So while Satan is not deceiving the nations during this time, you still have people who are born with a sin nature. If you're born with a sin nature, then necessarily what is true about you When you're born, you're born a what? A sinner. No different than right now. No different than right now. What is different is that the conditions around are much more reserved. You're not going to have rampant sin. As we see now people are gonna live for a long long time there's a temple there are sin offerings offered on that altar in that temple the temple's large enough that there are traffic patterns you come in this door you go out the other door. If you come in that door, you come out this one so that you've got orderly movement of people. Andrew? Yes, they are. In fact, if you go back, uh, I think it's in Isaiah uh, where it refers to, you know, it might be in Ezekiel. I forget which one it's in. Um, Where it talks about he who dies at the age of 100 will be considered an infant. So you have... Very long lifespans. Frankly, the the geography of the planet has been changed during the, the judgments. And so you basically have a wide plain and you have Jerusalem that's elevated and Jerusalem basically is the high ground in this. That's right. Yeah. It's, again, because you have conditions, uh, you have uh, climatic conditions that would allow for that. Well, yeah, you don't have the effect of the curse during the millennial kingdom. Now, going back over here to, to Andrew's question, when you have, at the onset of the millennial kingdom, remember that we've gone through chapter 19. At the end of chapter 19, you have uh, the beast and the false prophet getting sent to the lake of fire. All of those who are opposing Christ at Armageddon, they're killed with the sword coming from the mouth of the lamb. And the other thing that happens in there is the judgment of the sheep and the goats from Matthew 25. Remember that uh, when the Son of Man comes with all of his holy angels, um, he's going to sit on his, on his glorious throne and he is going to separate, as a shepherd, he is going to separate the sheep from the goats. sheep are going to go on his right. The goats are going to go on his left. Blessed are you and the blessings that are coming on those who are the sheep and the cursing, the curses that are coming on those who are the goats. The sheep go into life everlasting the goats don't No, this is this is the this is the separate this is the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. The great white throne, the great white throne is different. And is and probably at the end of chapter 19. And so All right, we'll get into that other here in in, in a moment. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him, for a 1,000 years. So what we're going to find in this chapter is that there are two general resurrections. And the best way for us to look at this is what these two resurrections represent. The first resurrection is a resurrection to life. These are people who are going to be uh, conducted into the presence of God because they're redeemed. So the first resurrection deals with those who are redeemed. The second resurrection, which is later in this chapter, that is those who are unredeemed. Now, it mentions a particular group of people here as those who are going to be resurrected in this first resurrection. And who are they? When we look... It's those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. So when are these people alive? They're alive during the tribulation. And they are singled out as this group of people is going to be resurrected and brought into God's presence. Now, why? might it be restricted to this group of people. Who else would be in the presence of God? Okay, so the comment here is made, the rest are already there. So the church is already there. Very possible the Old Testament saints are already there. The Old Testament saints are are difficult, just in this regard, because it's never actually said when they go. And so it could be that they're going here at this first resurrection. It could also be that they have gone when everybody else is gone at the time of the, of the, of the rapture. Okay? It's not specifically stated, so it's going to be in one of those two places. So the bottom line is, if you're redeemed, you're either, if you're redeemed dead, you're in heaven. You're in God's presence. You're with Christ forever. You're with God forever. There is still, at this point in time, there's another group of believers. What is is the uh, characteristic of this group of believers? Very broad. They are alive. They're still like you and me. They're in their earthly bodies. They're still breathing and kicking. Those are the ones who are going to populate the millennial kingdom. Because they have their normal bodies, they're going to do the things that you and I normally do. Now, you and I, in this sense, is generic. Since many of us in here, okay, we got two families that have got young kids who can still have kids. I'm not in that boat anymore. So you've got those who are going to be able to have children. In our glorified bodies, we don't do that. That's a fundamental change in between our, this body and our, our heavenly body, our eternal body. And so here you have this group that is brought to life. They're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, questions up to this point. Rick are you talking about the the tribulation Saints that's going to be both there's 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 absolutely going to be an explosion in the Jewish community of those turning to Christ I mean and to the point where God is looking at that and saying the nation is being redeemed. So... That was my next question, is that what we're talking about when God brings to himself? Right, because remember... Right, remember that one of the purposes of the tribulation is the purification of Israel. That is one of the primary purposes of, of that period of time is is redeeming that people. Good question That's what it says. All saved. right so when you get into Romans 11 where it talks about all Israel being saved and going back again into Zechariah uh, you know they shall look on them whom they have pierced and mourn for him as an only son uh, there's all of these things that all of a sudden they come to they realize who Jesus is and who he was and and, and, and and again, there's this massive turning to him. There are also going to be a number of Gentiles who come to faith, and so it's a mixed group in that regard. The difference with these people is that many, many of them will will seal their testimony with blood. I don't know if it's the appropriate time, but what about the prince What is his relationship? The prince... Okay, uh, so the question is, what's the relationship of the prince with all of this? Now, Danny's referring to Ezekiel, uh, chapters 40 to 48. The, the span of the millennial kingdom, that's what we get here in Revelation. If you want the most complete treatment of what the, uh, the millennial kingdom looks like, you go to Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48. That's where you're going to have the most complete treatment. Uh, rendition of that. The prince is the leader who, of, of the people of Israel at that time. And, and, and who the prince is, is actually, um, there's two major views to that. One is that he's Christ, and the other is that um, he is a, a basically a representative of Christ. Uh, and there's some back and forth on that as to which is proper. Alan. Right, and so, again, what Allen's Alan, were going back to Zechariah, four, excuse me, Daniel 12:7, and in that in that time there, in, at the end of, in, in Daniel 12, God is basically telling Daniel, okay, you seal up these visions. You seal these things up, because, therefore, way out in the future. However, Daniel 12 is where we get... Uh, Part of that is going to be the idea of the resurrection. You have a resurrection of those who are redeemed. He doesn't use that word. I believe he uses the word righteous. Uh, Those who are righteous, they go to life everlasting. Those who are not go to eternal judgment. And so the idea in the tribulation, two-thirds of the people of Israel will die during during the tribulation. It's not a popular time to be a Jew. And yet, in the midst of all of that, God is also going to be working in their hearts to bring them to saving faith. And so, are the people going to be shattered? You know, two out of three dying? I'd say that's pretty shattering. It says shatter the power of the holy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan's point is perhaps because their power is being shattered that it is humbling them. Now, there are a number of passages that come to my mind immediately when you phrase it that way. What's coming to yours? What was the way that God commonly referred to Israel? Stubborn. Stiff-necked, obstinate. If you're stiff-necked and you're obstinate, what are you definitely not? You're not humble. You're not humble. And so again, is God breaking them? Yes. Is God also saving them? Yes. Is God carrying out his promises to them? Yes in full. And that's part of the reason for the millennial kingdom. Again, remember, they were promised that they were going to have a land. And in the millennial kingdom, what are they going to have? They're going to have a land. And it's going to be every square foot that was intended for them. They're going to have fellowship with God. They're going to have all of the things that God promised for them. Sir. I find myself in these days
1: reading articles about the incredible technology that the Israelis have. Mm-hmm. You know, they have
0: the Iron Dome, mm-hmm. and then they have the the, beam, the laser dome that they're getting ready to use. And I haven't heard about that one. Alan's point is that, you know, they have great, they have developed great technology uh, for their national defense in Israel, and they've won a number of wars, and frankly, they have been miraculously delivered. Uh, If you look in our lifetime, if you look at the 1967, the Yom Kippur War, if you look at, at, uh, actually, 73 was Yom Kippur, if you look at the six-day war in 67, they should, and 48 as well, Uh, they should have been wiped off the planet. They should have been. And yet here they are. They've been supernaturally protected. Just as God has supernaturally protected them in the past, so he is going to supernaturally break them to bring them to the repentance that right now They don't know they need. Think back to when Jesus was on earth. Come down from the cross and save yourself. No, I'm not going to come down to save myself because that's not why I'm here. I'm here to save you. I'm here to do these things on your behalf. And you have no clue what it is that you really need. They wanted redemption from Rome. God was going to give them redemption from sin and from death. And so, again, um, God is using this. and, And who's he going to use to break Israel, to bring them to repentance? Again, who is he going to use? He's going to use pagans. He's going to use people who don't love him. That doesn't make them any less instruments in his hands. And so, and that again, that is going to be carried out in history during these seven years. God's promised it. He has said this is what is going to happen, and he's going to bring it out just as he says. Okay, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So you've had Satan bound for a while. Now, the reason that I gave you the handouts for the view of the millennial kingdom is that there are, there's a, a significant portion of Christendom that says, well, you know what? There's not going to be an actual physical thousand year earthly reign of Christ. Uh, most often, they come through and they say that that is uh, a thousand years is just a long time, and Satan is actually bound now. Now, I listed out for you in your notes. In fact, we. In fact, I actually gave you the idea that Satan is bound now would be an absolutely foreign idea to the men who wrote the Bible, who wrote the New Testament. Peter didn't see Satan as being bound. What was in his book? Satan's walking around as a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. Okay? If he's out walking around, he's not bound with a chain locked in an abyss. And Paul would look at this and go, that's... I'm going to use a technical term here. That's not so. How would you even come to that conclusion and so for instance here this wasn't Paul writing Acts 5:3 Satan filled the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit. The idea of Satan filling their hearts that's from the text. That is Luke writing the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit describing what's going on there. If Satan filled their heart, what did Satan do to them? He deceived them. He brought them to believe something that was not true, but they acted on it as though it was. That's deception. And you can go through Ephesians, uh, okay, 2 Corinthians 2.11, we're not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Ephesians 6.11, we're to put on the armor of God so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 11.14, Satan is disguising himself as an angel of light. And by the way, why would he do that? Why do you wear camouflage? It's to deceive. Uh, Some of us in here have hunted in the past and you wear camouflage so that you can look like you're blending in. You know, believe it or not, I can look like a twig. (laughs) And I have successfully looked like a twig. Because I have been from me to you, from wild animals, and they didn't know I was there. How? I'd have no idea. Why do you wear camouflage? What are you trying to do? I'm trying to deceive my prey. I'm hiding from them. I'm trying to make them believe that they are in a safe environment when, in fact, I'm hoping it is anything but safe for them. 2 Corinthians twelve seven, Paul was attacked by Satan. James 4, 7. We're to resist the devil, and if we resist the devil, he will what? He will flee from us. First Thess 2.18. Paul was hindered by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers. Okay, now some may try to draw the distinction. Well, that's talking about individuals. Satan is, when he is bound, he is not free to deceive the nations. Now, is that a valid distinction? That's not a rhetorical question. Nations are made up of people. And that's a great point. The fact of the matter is, when God is redeeming Israel, in fact, let's talk about them since that's one of the purposes of this period of time, of the tribulation. God is looking to redeem Israel. How is he going to do it? He's going to do it one Jew at a time. Just as he's redeemed us. He's redeemed us one at a time. Now the fact of the matter is, as I look around the room in here, we all just happen to be Americans. There are other churches gathering today that are in other nations, and God has been redeeming them as well, one at a time. Michael? Okay, so the question is, is there anything in Scripture that says it's done individually when we have indications of many at at, at the same time coming to Christ? God deals with men as individuals. We're going to be judged as individuals. We come to faith as an individual. I do not have the ability to believe for my wife as much as I would want to were she not redeemed. I do not, well, let's, let's, let's take it the next step. I do not have the ability to believe on behalf of my children. There's not a parent in here who doesn't wish that they could. But yet, we don't have that ability. And so God deals with us as individuals. Now, that being said, he is also able to do that on a massive scale. Now, whether or not those in Nineveh were actually redeemed is a valid question, all right? But the fact remains that when Jonah went and preached, the, the Reader's Digest version, frankly, of a gospel message, and it really wasn't even that. He walks into town and says, yet yeah, 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed. That's his message. And yet, from the king all the way down to the lowest in that nation, they put on sackcloth and ashes and said, you know, perhaps if we humble ourselves before this God, he will forego that judgment. And he did. And so in that case, you've got this massive group of people, you know, well over 100,000 people coming to that point. And so, you know, you can have a bunch that are coming there, but God deals with us as individuals. That's a good question, though. Any others? Alan. You said a couple minutes ago, is Satan
1: bound now? Use the word now. And then you've read these verses from 1900 plus years ago showing that Satan was not bound during that time. Does that fit in the now?
0: Okay. Okay, so the question is, um, I said that Satan is not bound now. But I'm reading stuff that's from 1,900 years ago, so does that still apply here? And that answer would be yes, because what is typically uh, put forward as the time when Satan was bound is the cross. At the cross, God limited Satan's power to where he could not prevent the the spread of the gospel, and he could not deceive the nations in that way. That's the way that they put that. And since the whole New Testament was written after the cross and, and frankly um, I don't think there's anything in history that would show any different uh, now. And so does that, does that mean the, do I think that Satan is bound now? No. He's going to be. But that hasn't happened yet. And again, notice When you look at Ezekiel and and those nine chapters, when you look at life in the millennial kingdom, it doesn't look anything like life today. You pick up a newspaper and tell me that Satan is hindered. Our, Our society can't even figure out who can go into which bathroom. They can't come up with, you know, well, how many genders are there? I don't know. I've lost track on their side. Okay, look, there's two because God made male and female. When you start getting all of that stuff messed up, how can you expect them to be able to come up with anything else that makes sense? Rick, you had a question. Okay. Okay. Okay, so Satan's, uh, excuse me, oh gosh, I'm sorry, I just said that. Rick's point. Do you have a pointy head and a tail? Do you play an accordion? I don't think I'm ever going to hear the end of this one either. Okay, so the point is, In fact, I think I've even forgotten what the point was right now in all this excitement. Um, God sets limits, and and that was the point that Rick was making, is that God sets limits on Satan, and that is absolutely true. And you've got scripture from Genesis to Revelation that proves that. That is consistent throughout time. Uh, God set limits on Job. When, he was tempted, when, when Satan was coming after Job, God set limits as to what he could do and what he, and what he could do and what he could not. And so absolutely God is sovereign and the most Satan has ever been able to do is within the parameters that God sets for him. So is he, is he limited in that respect? Absolutely, but that are, those are limits that have existed from the beginning of time as opposed to something special during this thousand year period. Good point. can talk about the but it also says Yep. Yeah, and so the idea you know when he's in the abyss, he's in the slammer. Alright? When you're in the slammer, you don't have look, do we have an example of someone who's in a slammer and limited? How about the Apostle Paul? Was Paul free to roam about wherever he was? Could Paul go on southwest and roam about the country? No. He's bound. If he wants to communicate a message to somebody, he's got to write it down and get somebody to carry it to them. Is Paul, so again, that's the idea. Satan's bound, and again, it's, the, the the lid is closed and it's locked. He's going nowhere. And God limits what he is able to do beyond that prison. Now that's one difference between him and Paul. Paul's able to write letters, many of which we have, some of which at least we have. Oh yeah, the word of God, that's not chained. And is he able to encourage? Is he able to influence people from his prison cell? That's exactly what he's trying to do with every letter he writes. Every one of those intent is intended to be influential. It's intended to cause people to be able to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so he's able to do that. Satan is specifically excluded from being able to do that. So he's not just physically confined. He is influentially confined because what Satan is about is deception. That is his main purpose, is deceiving. What's the first thing he does when he gets out of demon prison? Right back into deception. Deception right back into it in fact let's just go there verse 7 when the thousand years are completed Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations so again that's what he is he's a liar he's the father of lies he's about fooling people and convincing them that you know of something that he alleges to be true which is in fact false so he comes out He goes to deceive the nations which were in the four corners of the earth. Again, the idea being that this is something that's global. Gog and Magog. When we we went through Ezekiel 38 and 39, well, actually we didn't. We went through 36 to the end of the chapter uh, a few weeks ago in the main service. The idea here of Gog and Magog, Gog is a person. Gog is a leader. Magog is the place. So Magog, if you go back into the ta- table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, you'll find Magog there. You will not find Gog listed anywhere. Not in that term. And so Gog is, Gog is a leader in Magog. To gather again for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Verse 9, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The beloved city here is going to be What city? Jerusalem so here you have them like the sand of the seashore when you have an army coming at you that's numbered like the sand of the seashore should you be concerned if you don't have God on your side you would better be as it is God doesn't even call up the reserves. Here they come. They've surrounded the camp. They've surrounded the city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them again. You know, we talked about this last week. You know, you expect some epic battle. And it's anticlimactic. You know, Jesus comes with his armies in white linen at Armageddon. Those in his armies don't even have weapons. And their fine linen that they're that they're clothed in doesn't even get stained. They don't even break a sweat. They don't break a sweat because they don't do anything. Jesus does it all with the sword that comes from his mouth. And in this case here, fire comes down from heaven and devoured them. And Okay, so the question is, where did this vast number of fighters come from? All right, in Jeremiah 17.9, something is revealed about us. Anybody know Jeremiah 17.9 offhand? I know some of you do. Our hearts are terminally ill, right? They're 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 wicked beyond measure. Who can know it? That's that's our human heart. And for an unredeemed person, that is the description of them, right? They are thoroughly depraved. It doesn't mean that they're as evil as they could be, but that's their bent. Because remember, those who are born are born with a sin nature, and you're born unredeemed. And so the idea here is that right now, there are, there's an excuse that some try to use. And it was epitomized by Flip Wilson in his comedy show back in the 60s or 70s, I don't remember which decade, it's a long time ago. What was his saying? The devil made me do it. In the millennial kingdom, nobody can say that. Because the devil can't make anybody do anything. So, with Jesus ruling personally on this planet, sin greatly reduced, the blessings of heaven manifest and all around, not like it's going to be the eternal state, but in a lot of ways very similar. With all of that, yet you will still have some who will not, repent and believe you're still going to have some now they're going to be compliant they're going to fit in but when all of a sudden the opportunity arises they jump on that like white on rice and so when satan comes out to deceive the nations oh yeah that's what i'm about And again, this isn't one or two. This is a bunch. That is the danger. See, that's why when you go back into Proverbs, for instance, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Why not? Because your own understanding in your unredeemed state, that compass does not point north. It's bent. You're not going to be able to get there. You can't reason yourself there. You can't work your way there. People for them, for people to be redeemed in the millennial kingdom is going to be the same way that it happens now, just as it was the same way before. You got to take God at his word. And so you have and now by the way, there's gonna be a lot of people born. In a thousand years. Can you imagine what Carol and I could do in a thousand years? <laughs> Just saying. However, even if you and were there, you know. <laughs> oh, we're gonna be there. <laughs> We're going to be there, but not not in our earthly bodies. <laughs> it seems like the number of people who can be produced
1: after the tribulation wouldn't be really large because so many are going to die.
0: Right? Hard to know.
1: Mm-hmm. all of the unbelieving dead will be resurrected where are their bodies going to be could they be part of this vast number
0: no why not because when the unbelieving dead are resurrected it's to go straight to the great, right, great white throne I can't even say that five times really quickly um, because there's going to be there's, there's two deaths There's the one that they suffered that that put them in Hades or Sheol. And then there's going to be the second one that is in the lake of fire. For them to be, you know, if they're the ones that are being resurrected to be killed in that judgment where they just burn up, um, they're dying three times. And so um, it's going to be because in a thousand years, You can have a lot of people in a 1,000 years. There can be. Yeah, the population of the earth has doubled in, I want to say, the last 30 or 40. And we are at 8 billion now. So, and again, so again, it's like the thing where you have a grain of rice uh, and you're putting it on a checkerboard or a chessboard and you double it every square you know in, in the beginning it doesn't it's not much but you know what you get 20 30 squares in and all of a sudden that's a big number and by the time you're getting in about 30 35 it's actually more grains of rice than it exists on the face of the planet and so um, it's it again what what again it's showing is that here you have people growing up in almost perfect conditions. And why are they not saved? It's because of the depravity of their own heart. And so there's no blame to be assigned here other than pointed directly at me if I'm one of these that chooses not to repent and not to believe. It's my bad. It's on And again, showing the deceitfulness of my own heart. So here you have fire comes down from heaven. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived him was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The one point to get there. It's been a thousand years since the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire. And where are they at the end of that thousand years? They're still there. So there is no such thing as annihilationism. There's no such thing as I'm going to be there for a period of time and God's going to get tired of you know, tormenting me and it's going to end. It is forever and ever. And Jesus back in Matthew 25 was the one who said that this place, the lake of fire, was created for the devil and his angels. That was the original, that's the intended occupants of this place. Those who choose to follow Satan end up with him. And again, No break. Andrew. It is hard to say when the lake of fire was created. It could exist now. It could. It's just unoccupied. In that way, it is similar to the places that Jesus is making for you and me. He's making a dwelling place for each one of his redeemed. I'll bet you that dwelling place is already built. It's just unoccupied right now. And so when and where, no one knows. That's not given. What is, and then again, what, we, what is given is that there is that place and it is Eternal. It's still going to be going plenty strong for the beast and the false prophet after a thousand years. And when Satan gets there, it's going to keep right on going. And the smoke of their torment is going to rise forever and ever. By the way, that term forever and ever, that phrase is the very same one used to describe the eternality of Christ and of God. So if you want to try to say that somehow that's not going to last for that long, then you're going to have to be able to come up with, and how is that different than from how God represents himself? So you're telling me that God has an end? That Christ has an end? Andrew. The forever and ever, when it says forever and ever, that is the same phrase used in this book in talking about Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. I'm not going to try to do the tenor part there. The point being, that is communicating, that is true of Jesus. That is absolutely true of God. It is also true of this place of punishment for the devil and his angels, and ultimately for the unredeemed. Okay, the question is that's in the sense of going forward forever and ever, and that answer is yes. So God, if you were to try to graph God, God is a ray with an arrow on one end and an arrow on the other. He goes from everlasting to everlasting. God existed before there was such a thing as time. God was, God has no beginning. He has no end. You and I are also raised, except we have a point. We came into existence at a point in time. Now that point then goes on, and it goes on forever and ever. Every person ever born is an eternal creature. They're going to exist in one of two places. They're going to exist in heaven, in the presence of God, or they're going to exist in hell, in torment and anguish. I'm talking, I'm talking, if you're going to represent him graphically, you're right, a line, I'm sorry. My wife is correcting me on my mathematical usage of terms, and she's right. God has no beginning, he has no end, We have a fixed beginning. In fact, everything other than God has a fixed beginning. Satan's a created creature. God made Satan. God made the angels. God made us. We have a point in time beginning and we continue on. Thank you for the correction. All right, any other questions? We are going to stop here. And we'll talk about the great white throne of judgment next week father thank you that in fact you are sovereign over everything you are sovereign over time you're sovereign over you're sovereign over your enemies you limit them as to what they can and cannot do and father thank you that you're sovereign over salvation those who you call they're going to come thank you that you've made a way to where we can be rescued from the wrath that is to come Father, help help us to to be about your business that we would be preaching your gospel to those that we encounter. The time is near. I mean, it could be any time now for, for us to be gathered to you. And so help us to be about your business. Help us to be consumed with your business that we may honor you and proclaim the, the glories of him, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Christ's name, amen.